Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and last night my boyfriend took me up the shard. It might be getting serious, guys. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm genuinely starting a teabag stockpile in preparation for Brexit. And I'm Jen Offord and I'm 99% sure a Tinder date stole a bottle of perfume from my bathroom last week. Can I also say I'm never shopping at Curry's PC World again as well, just for just for added value. You can absolutely say that, but they didn't steal the perfume, Jen. They didn't. Okay. But they did steal part of my soul. That's so. <laughs> true. Later on, I chat to journalist Shona Craven about how to make feminism your theme at this year's Edinburgh Festival. And if you think you're having a terrible time on the trains of late, I talked to comedian Tanya Lee Davis about what it's like to be disabled and trying to use public transport. I get answers to the question, why do we piss ourselves laughing, from physiotherapist Elaine Miller and talk darts with Fallon Sherrick. And I do Disney's Wall-E. But first, Brexit. Sigh. Pay gaps. Sigh. And insensitive rape coverage by the media. Sigh. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, as welcome as an air-conditioned train or the news that the NRA are in some financial bother. Do either of those exist? Air-conditioned trains, NRA in bother? NRA are in bother. Yes, Please. yes they are. Take yeah. that. So, it's been a few weeks since we had a Bush Telegraph, but the nation's descent into chaos continues apace regardless, with the Brexit situation now resembling the closing stages of that race where a bunch of Egypt chase a cheese down a very steep hill. Is it a French cheese? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's what's going to be happening soon, isn't it? (laughs) But seriously, politics is just a series of arms and legs and people shouting, fuck! As it was revealed that the government is stockpiling blood and medicine in the event of a no deal, it also emerged it was not planning to tell us about its other emergency plans in case, you know... We aren't awaiting March the 29th, 2019 with the breathless but misplaced anticipation of a doomsday cult. Calls for a people's vote also continue apace. And why wouldn't they? 48% of us didn't even want this in the first place. Mm -hmm. And surely all those people who claimed they only voted leave because of those goddamn buses might be swayed to rethink their view in light of new information. Because I'm pretty sure the message on the side wasn't vote leave and we'll give the NHS all the medicine you can catch from an army helicopter. (laughs) Meanwhile, Rhys Mogg, Johnson and the like continue to warn about listening to Project Fear, to which I'd respond, if you're not scared of what a no-deal Brexit will look like, you're either a carpetbagger or you're failing to grasp the gravity of the situation. And I've got little to no sympathy for either position. Please, for fuck's sake, could someone just get a hold of the situation? (laughs) I don't care who it is. At the moment, I'd pretty much give anyone a hearing. The increasingly reasonable sounding Pope, the crankies, (laughs) Uh the ghost of Alan Turing, the Liberal Democrat. Hey, easy now, Hannah. Come on. Considering much of the country is opting to listen to Nigel Farage, a man who has failed to win a number of elections, and Katie Hopkins a woman who has failed to win a number of reality television shows, I'm wondering what Lord Buckethead has to say on the matter. Or that guy who was on Popstars and then on X Factor. Let's bring them to the table. All ideas welcomed, guys. (laughs) Jen looked for a second like she knew who I was talking about. Darius, mate. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. Darius, if you've got an idea, call me. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, the author of The Assassination of British Sense by the Coward David Cameron is now busy penning his memoirs, which promise to contain a sick burn about Michael Gove. They'll be rolling in the food queues at that, David, I'm sure. You spoiled, weaselly, can't take responsibility for your own mess, looks like a lost member of Keen twat. 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 It's worth noting that amid all the government's laudable... laudable forward planning to stockpile spam and peach slices so we're not all locked into some sort of post-Brexit hunger game scrabble for the UK's last potato that loads of people are unable to afford to eat now yeah that's right teabag for a big sector of our society it's already food mageddon the summer holidays is a very tough time for kids who rely on free school dinners for their one proper meal a day. An anti-poverty charity, the Trussell Trust, is firm that the increase in food bank usage we're seeing over the summer months is fuelled by these hungry kids. The rollout of universal credit and having to find between 30 and 40 quid a week for a meal that would usually be provided by schools is really taking its toll. It does seem that the Tories might finally be making a link between austerity and the sharp rise in the use of food banks. And earlier this month, The Guardian reported that ministers have secretly drawn up plans to investigate whether the government's own policies have any part to play in what's occurring. (laughs) I mean... It's a a start, I suppose. And if this basic maths is successful, maybe one day they'll be able to tell their arse from their elbow. I think that's... Unlikely. Such a dreamer, mate. <laughs> I know, right? Meanwhile, a report by MPs published last week has recommended that requirements on businesses to declare what they pay male and female members of staff should be extended. Under the current rules, only businesses with more than 250 members of staff are obliged to make this information public. But only half the UK's workforce actually falls within those organisations. The Business Committee, chaired by Rachel Reeves, said that any businesses with more than 50 members of staff should be subject to the reporting rules, adding that some pay gaps were obscene. Businesses covered by the current laws were required to report by April this year when, like a bunch of bouncy students, over 1,000 reported on the last day. Like that mad dissertation dash, innit? Because this is serious business, right, Ryanair? Who, incidentally, at the time, reported a 71.8% gender pay gap. On the new report, Reeves added, the penalties of working part-time, both financial and in terms of career progression, are a major cause. Or, you know, actively caused by a pay gap which incentivises the lowest earner in a two-parent household to be the one to take time off. Meanwhile, the Government Equalities Office took the matter very seriously indeed and said it was publishing new guidance for firms on ways to close the gender pay gap. No, really, they need guidance, apparently, because it's, it's, yeah... What do you reckon that guidance might be? Because it involves the words close the gender pay gap. Pay women pay more. Pay women more. <laughs> pay the women the same as men doing the same job. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Please could, and thank you. Could you write that down in a 3,000-word <laughs> pamphlet, please, Jen? No props. OK. Talk Radio finally got round to suspending one of its DJs, James Whale, several days after he conducted an interview with a rape victim that the company finally noticed, quotes completely lacked sensitivity. They took their time, didn't they? They certainly did. I could go into more detail, but I don't actually need to because you know the story. Even if you don't know this particular story, because it's the same story. Woman is brave enough to talk about her experience. Man demonstrates why the vast majority of women don't. Mm -hmm. Talk Radio's statement ended, quotes, This incident saw regrettable errors made by both the production and presenting teams and we are taking measures to ensure that they are not repeated again. And that kind of is the point. Ignorant views rarely exist in a vacuum. 
Suspending or even sacking whale is not going to stop the rot. It goes way deeper than that. I'd be interested to know what measures it's taking to ensure those mistakes aren't repeated. Here's some free suggestions for you. Give some money to rape crisis. Have an editorial policy on the way you talk about rape. Stop being bellends. Hannah said I was the dreamer. Yeah. (laughs) Mate. At the end of last month, in this country, the Supreme Court denied a woman a divorce. A, quote, wretchedly unhappy marriage is, according to UK law, not grounds for divorce. Tini Owens filed for divorce from Hugh Owens, stating that the marriage was loveless and irretrievably broken down. The kids have grown up. They'd long been sleeping in separate rooms. In 2012, she had an affair and in 2015 left the marital home and is so determined she wants an official split that she has pursued it to the highest level. Hugh Owens, however, has argued that he feels the couple still have a few years to enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it, right? (laughs) And with that benchmark, you've got to wonder what else he does to have a good time. Extracts his own teeth. Perhaps he repeatedly hits himself in the ball sack with a cricket bat while yelling, no, really, this is like sunshine on the testes. The mind boggles. Tini Owens has cited her husband's unreasonable behaviour, but the Supreme Court has, quote, reluctantly come to the conclusion that it's not unreasonable enough, even though, as far as I'm concerned, not allowing someone who has made it starkly clear that they do not want to be with you to leave seems pretty fucking unreasonable. But, you know, the law, which in this case is archaic bullshit. Because, yes, it is 2018, not 1874, in case this has started you wondering. But in order to secure a divorce, both parties have to agree to it, or you have to wait five years after separation. Which means Tini Owens must now remain married to Hugh Owens until at least 2020. Oh, wait, news just in. Tini Owens has decided to reconcile with Hugh. (laughs) Having seen the error of her. Of course she hasn't. A court cannot make her love him, but it could have set her free. That's baffling, isn't it? It's Victorian. Oh, I reckon we've got a few good years <laughs> She won't live with me or speak to me. <laughs> She's actively gone to the highest court in the land in an attempt to leave me, but, you know, that sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> Fucking hell. Roll on 2020 when he'll be single, eh, ladies? <laughs> Moving on. Telecoms regulator Ofcom reported last week that the number of voice calls made on mobile phones had fallen for the first time ever last year while mobile phone users' dependence on their smartphones remained high. According to the regulator, 78% of UK adults now own smartphones. Seriously, who are the other 22%? My mum. Does she have a smartphone? My mum has a smartphone. My dad has one as well. It's red. He's really proud of that. He says, I work in the entertainment industry. Of course I've got a red phone. Anyway. (laughs) Does he call it his hotline? (laughs) His bat phone? Um... So, now how the fuck do I get back into this? Uh, <laughs> what are those 78% doing, Jen? What, right, thanks, Mick. They're checking their phone, on average, once every 12 minutes. Two in five look at their phone within five minutes of waking up, and a third just before falling asleep. While perhaps more troubling, 78% said they couldn't live without their phone. Though despite this, the number of calls made on mobiles dropped by 1.7% in 2017. And I don't know about you, but communicating entirely through Beyonce memes is working out pretty well for me. Who spends more time online every day, I hear you crying? Well, and this probably won't come as a huge surprise, it's pretty evenly split until you get to the ages of 18 to 44, where women are overwhelmingly spending more time online, presumably crying over Kim Kardashian's Snapchat, taking Instagram selfies or sending nudes. I'm doing all three right now. As we I speak. don't even know what the last one is. <laughs> Mate, nude. nudes. Nudes. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Jen spelt it. Noobs, Noobs with a Z. That's yeah. how the kids talk. Can we talk about Brexit again to cheer me up, please? Not right now. I'm sure we will come back to that. But I'm going to give you a little story that might put a smile on your face, Jen. Okay. A Polish brewery called the Order of Yoni has produced the world's first vaginal beer. Boke. That's right. That, that reaction is correct. <laughs> Lactic acid is harvested from the chuffs of two consenting female models oh, in a laboratory. No, actually, I think I might mm-hmm. And that becomes a starter for either lust, a dry muscat aroma, or passion, a bière de champagne. According to the website, it's brewed with her lure and grace and flavoured with wild instincts. And that is exactly how I feel during a smear test. It's why I book them in when I don't need them. I just can't get me enough of releasing those wild instincts. In fact, I might go for one right now. Hannah looks like actually gippy. Yep. Owner Wojciech Mann explains, quote, When you drink this beer, you know that at the beginning there was a very beautiful woman who can now bathe somewhere, dance. Maybe she laughs. <laughs> he has been to a smear test. I asked my mate Miller, who um, kindly pointed this discovery out to me, whether he'd give vaginal beer a go. And he explained that as he found cloudy ale unnerving, it probably wasn't for him. Fair dues. In fairness, I haven't had chance to check with any lesbians, but interestingly, this product does seem to be very much targeted at hetero men. To be honest, I'm not sure the male equivalent would hold any appeal for hetero birds. Want to drink something that tastes like off-bleach? I don't don't know. Can can bleach go off? I don't know, but this Bathmaster Lager beer sure tastes like it. I think I'm the designated driver forever. Come out again now, Hannah. She's buried herself in a T-shirt and having spent three hours on a train, I'm not sure that was the wisest idea. In the uh, famous words of Usher, I can tell you've been eating your pineapple. Anyway, anyone want some good news? Yes, please. (laughs) And it's a massive brap, brap, brap to the Irish women's hockey team who made history on Sunday competing in the Hockey World Cup final for the first time in their 130-year history. Now, they were ultimately beaten 6-0 by the Netherlands at the Lee Valley Stadium, but went into the final as underdogs ranked 15 places below the Netherlands in the world standings, not to mention massively underfunded. The Irish team consisted of doctors, lawyers, teachers and students. So, you know, people with very much other shit to be getting on with. Well done, they, those women. They paid their own way there. Paid their own accommodation, paid their own travel. And I think, I might be wrong, I think, because I listened to this on the radio, if you can believe that, it's not just the first time that Irish women have made it into the Hockey World Cup final. It's the first time an Irish team's ever made it into any World Cup final, I believe. Wow. Now, I did see some chat about people going, oh, no, they were actually in the Gulf and things like that. But actually, an Irish team in the final of an international event, as far as I'm aware, hasn't actually happened before. Ireland is literally lousy with role models at the moment. Yeah. Really loads of them. Then you tweet that they've won 2018. Yeah, they're done. Yeah. Just seriously, call that off. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we remind ourselves that the patriarchy doesn't just want us to sit down and shut up. It requires us to wipe its arse for it, too. Oh yes, Twitter got its knickers in a twist on Monday when a Daily Telegraph article opened with the statement that post-Brexit, yeah, we're there again, there may not be enough people to work in care homes, so women are going to have to give up their jobs in order to fill the gaps. That's according to the Department of Health, which estimates a shortfall of 28,000 carers, which will, it says, lead to many people, and I quote, especially women, having to become full-time carers for family members. Q combined moral outrage from people angrily asking why women, 
To which I'd say, where the fuck have you been before today? The overwhelming majority of unpaid care work is already done by women. Of course, they're going to be expected to do more. That is a fact. At least the Department of Health acknowledges it. Feel free to be angry at the stats and society for operating that way, but don't pretend that this is something new. Just because you've never taken the time to think about it before, it's frankly insulting to all the women currently doing more than their fair share to say, why will this fall to women when it already is? It's that time of the week where we find new sexism and quickly realise it's actually just old sexism. Hello, I'm joined on the phone by journalist, blogger and podcaster Shona Craven, founder and host of the podcast A Feminist Guide to the Festivals. Hey Shona. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to the Fringe. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely am because I'm seeing things that I'm genuinely excited and curious about. This must be why you decided to start A Feminist Guide to the Festivals. Can you tell us a little bit about how it came about, please? Sure. Well, I used to work the Fringe as a journalist reviewing and was always very busy and harassed. And then as time went on and I moved away from arts reviewing, I still I had massive FOMO about the Fringe, which I'm sure a lot of people can experience. Uh-huh. But you have to have a kind of a place to start. If you don't have a sort of professional purpose at the Fringe, you have to think, well, what do I want to get out of it? And it's a massive, massive programme that a lot of people don't have time to look through realistically. So I started, you know, flicking through and I thought, well, you know, I'm a feminist. I'm interested in feminist theatre and stand-up, whether it kind of fully succeeds or not. So why don't I put together a list of things I want to see and then do some podcasts and kind of get away from the sort of three-star, four-star, five-star, very reductive way of reviewing that I used to be part of and have more of a discussion so that people get more of a sense of whether a show might be for them rather than just assigning it, oh, this is a hit of the fringe, this is a five-star show. And how easy was it to find stuff that fit your criteria? Pretty easy, because when I say a feminist guide to the festival, it doesn't necessarily mean that... The show has to have feminism in its description. It doesn't necessarily even need to be a feminist show. It just needs to be a show that will be of interest to feminist women. So it might be about women's bodies. It might be about masculinity. It might be about uh, children or fertility or any of these topics. And it could be that you might go along to a show that is in one of those categories and come away thinking, oh, that was really sexist or really reductive and problematic. But... I still find that very interesting because it sort of shows you a different perspective, maybe. Whereas if you go to an explicitly feminist stand-up show, someone like Bridget Christie, I'm going to be sitting laughing and nodding my head. I'm not going to be probably disagreeing with anything she says, but disagreement is almost as interesting or more so than agreement for me. Okay, so tell us, what are your discoveries for this year's Fringe? Okay, well, so far from my extensive trolling through the programme, I would say that masculinity is quite a big theme. There's possibly as many kind of explorations of masculinity as there are shows about Me Too. And I don't know if people maybe imagine that people are a bit fatigued hearing Me Too stories or that, you know, the festival, you know, you think more comedy and, and entertainment rather than kind of verbatim stories of really quite difficult topics but I think the shows about masculinity will go into a lot of that um, tricky territory. I was interested to see if there was anything uh, touching on the incel concept and there isn't but I think it's because that phrase maybe came to popular use a little bit too late for someone to then devise a show sort of around that theme. Someone Um, must be doing a rip-off of Jordan Peterson somewhere though surely. Well, well, there is one show in particular, Angry Alan by Penelope Skinner, that's on at the underbelly. And <laughs> yeah, that, I want to sounds see that. Like, that sounds quite interesting, masculinity in crisis. And a few of them refer explicitly to sort of toxic masculinity. 
yeah, I mean, that whole oh, sort of steamroller of problematic male behaviour is ripe for someone to really break down. There's also a show called The Abode. Davy Anderson, who's a well-known Scottish playwright, is also doing something exploring the alt-right underworld. And both of these shows actually refer to men feeling like an outsider in their own home or their own country, which, you know, for men is quite a radical and, you know, destabilising state of affairs where plenty of women obviously feel marginalised in their own country and, and possibly wouldn't even think to do a show about that because it's such a common experience. Yeah. As usual at the Fringe, there's always a lot of one man and one woman story shows, either the, the performer talking about their own life or someone else's. And there's there's plenty, as we would hope in this year of 100 years since women's suffrage, the, the first phase of that. And there are quite a lot of her story shows shining a light on women's histories that we otherwise wouldn't know about. One of them that I'm particularly looking forward to, there's that Daring Australian Girl, which is about an Australian actress who became a leading figure in the UK suffragette movement. I had never heard of her. So is it it's always Muriel interesting to go into. Uh, yes, Muriel Matters. You, you're obviously more informed than I am. No, I've got, uh, I've got your blog is... open, darling. That's what I've oh, got. You've got the blog <laughs> <laughs> also, my name is Dorothy. This one really interests me because it's about a woman who disguised herself as a soldier during World War One and spent three weeks undercover at the front line. And uh, I find that very interesting. I'm particularly interested at the moment of these stories in the past of women pretending to be men so that they can get into male-dominated sort of areas. And the front line of the First World War is probably the sort of pinnacle of achievement if you're trying to do something like that. Sapper yeah. Lawrence has actually been on our show twice now. We spoke to ah. Alison Vale, an author, and she wrote about all the different blue plaques for women that aren't there and should be there. And Sapa Lawrence, mm-hmm. Dorothy Lawrence, was one of them. And her story is amazing and heartbreaking. So... My name is Dorothy, oh, sounds like a cracking pick. Okay, well, I'm very excited all the more. Uh, another one from the musical section is a, it's a, a musical about Robert Burns, but it's told by his widow, Jean Armour, and his mistress. It's based on them meeting and discussing. So it is a story about a man, um, but it's told from the perspective of two women, which I'm really interested in, because obviously as a Scottish person, you know, I've heard a lot about Burns and a lot about his womanising, but kind of portraying him very much as this sort of lovable lovable womanizer who just can't help it so i'm really interested to hear from the women's perspective lovable, lovable womanizer yeah yeah it's like mm, maybe not if you're the woman involved <laughs> exactly. but maybe i don't know it was another time obviously but then also and this is i, I don't know if it counts as her story i suppose it does there's cora Bissett's show what girls are made of I'm a big fan of Cora Bissett from, from when, from before really she was she was making theatre and she was acting at the time. It's her own story about her own sort of youth and teenage years when she uh, became an indie music star and, you know, performed. I, I don't know if it's a solo show, but she's performing it. She's mined her old diaries and things like that, which yeah, I'm sure will be really entertaining. So it's a very recent history, but still, still quite novel, you know, for women to be telling their own stories in their own words and hopefully it not to be reduced to women's material a woman's show because why is that any less worthy of attention than a man doing exactly the same thing ah you have segued very neatly there onto something we were going to chat about which is (laughs) that comedy staple the difference between men and women but it's also a difference in perception and you wrote a brilliant piece about Mm -hmm. that last year can you tell us a little bit more about why it interested you yeah um i think the reason why this interested me was because i I'm aware that there are a number of maybe maybe as many as a dozen sort of names, female names in in comedy who you will see at the fringe coming back again and getting getting solid sort of reviews and ratings. But I do think that 
there is still this problem for women talking about themselves, their lives, their experiences, and having this put in this box of women's comedy, whereas a man can stand up on stage, he can talk about masturbation, he can talk about his beard, he can talk about not liking football and how that affects his social life. And none of these things end up being termed as men's topics and men's comedy, even though they clearly are, because they're to do with male bodies or they're to do with male socialisation. Whereas Mm -hmm. put a woman on stage talking about fertility, you know, and and a biological clock or, you know, raising small children. And suddenly that becomes women's comedy and it's sort of put to the side or it's assumed not to be a universal experience because bizarrely it's assumed that the male experience is is universal even though 50% of the population aren't male. So why, I'm not saying I don't relate to anything Michael McIntyre or Richard Herring or, you know, any of these kind of name male comics. I'm not sitting there feeling like an alien thinking, what are they rambling on about? Because we are all human. Yet last year, uh, Jenny B did a show that was about fertility and her own experiences. And it was a song and dance show and it was full of energy and some some really great uh, numbers within it. But when I went to read some of the reviews, you know, people were complaining, oh, here's a woman shouting at us about, you know, her fertility. And I thought, well, why is that a problem? You know, if you don't like the content or the show, but why would that topic be off limits? That is a topic of universal interest, having children, you know, the next generation of humanity. How could that possibly be considered a woman's issue? I just don't see it that way. Of course, that's coming from my perspective. I'm roughly the same age as that performer. And a lot of my friends might be going through the same things as her. I don't personally relate to it. Uh, I have no intention of having children but I don't dismiss that because it's not personally relevant to me. Absolutely agree with everything you've just said. Another interesting point was the reviewers you were talking about to do with Jenny's show were actually mm. women reviewers Yeah, and it's like we've exactly. been socialised so much that even women don't see women's experience as universal. I know I know and again maybe that's because there's an age difference there or, or just a difference in, in their own lives and lifestyles but actually I do wonder it'd be a fascinating PhD project for someone to troll through all the reviews but I wonder if women might be even slightly more likely to do that or the other thing is to talk about a woman's appearance when it's not necessarily relevant to the stand-up show the women fair enough if a comic themselves references their own appearance then that might be relevant to mention in the review but if they don't why are you saying that this woman is you know barely five foot tall why are you saying that she's you know a size 20 is it relevant to the material if it is okay you know, you do get the sense that, you know, she's being regarded as, is she ornamental? Well, you like looking at her for an hour. Whereas, you know, no offence to the male stand-up comics, but they tend not to look like matinee idols. There's a reason they've gone into comedy <laughs> rather than modelling, and they don't get their appearance picked apart and scrutinised in the same way, unless, as I say, you know, their whole show's about being overweight or their whole show's about having a big beard. It's definitely a problem, and I do wonder if men increasingly are thinking, oh, should I put that in about what she's wearing? Whereas women maybe think they're getting a pass because it's a sort of girl-on-girl crime and somehow that doesn't seem to matter as much. I think it's that history of women being pitted against each other and so now it feels like a natural default. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not blaming these individual, you know, comedy writers at all because they are part of a society in which women are thought of and, and conditioned a certain way. Obviously, you'd hope if you're writing something for, for widespread publication that you would you'd be alive to that. But, you know, maybe people think, you know, this is a performer, it's fair game. And I think in the fringe as well, I think there's a tendency to be that bit more nasty because there's so much on. 
if some if something fails a wee bit or you know somebody gets their words wrong i think critics can be tempted to be a bit harsher it goes both ways as well they often go, go more overboard in their praise because they're trying to help the reader think well this is good this is bad this is not worth seeing and i think there can be some really harsh reviewing whereas i would prefer if someone was trying to do something interesting and it didn't quite succeed give them credit for trying i'm not saying encourage half of the world to go and watch it but don't do them down and don't be really dismissive when someone is has a good idea or has some potential and they're just not quite there yet. Over the course of time that you've been visiting the Fringe and, and reviewing the Fringe and, and looking at it professionally have you seen a change in the number of women doing their own thing and having a bit more confidence in talking about and I'm doing this in rabbit's ears women subjects i.e what half the population will relate to? Mm-hmm. I think so, yes. I think the proportion of women comics is definitely improving. And I think someone like Bridget Christie has made quite a big difference. Maybe Josie Long as well. Maybe not as explicitly feminist in her material, but I would imagine if you were to go back 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, and you typed the word feminism or feminist into you know, a search for the whole programme, you would maybe find half a dozen shows. So back in the day, I would be looking for a theme around which I could do a few reviews. And there might be a theme of, you know, in a year like this, a theme of Brexit, a theme of Trump, a theme of feminism. But now if you were trying to do a theme of feminism, you've got loads and loads of shows to potentially choose from. It's not just one of these little topics. It's ongoing. And I think the fact that Bridget Christie won the Edinburgh Comedy Award, a lot of women probably kind of pricked up their ears and thought, oh, I'm... I'm, I'm allowed to do I'm allowed to do all that material. That's not going to be considered really off-putting and feminazi and, and all these kind of pejorative things. They thought, oh, I think that kind of gave women permission to do that kind of material without worrying that someone was going to put them in a, a box marked feminist comedy and have that be a very limiting box. They actually realised, gosh, is that can I commercialise what I really think about, you know, X or Y? And and maybe the kind of conversations they were already having privately in their own circles, they thought, well, we can bring these into the public. So I think I think that, that did make a really big difference. One of the things as well is a woman getting on stage and talking about stuff that affects her is feminist in itself. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's been a lot of my sort of, when I've been going through the programme and thinking, you oh, know, does this one sound feminist or not? And then I think... Well, yeah, it does. You know, even if it's just someone, you know, there's a show called uh, Baby Daddy and it's about being a, a single mother in your 20s. And, uh, you know, I sort of look, looked at that and I go, well, you know, that woman might not be a feminist, but that's still an interesting, I've not heard that talked about, particularly in a one-woman show at the Fringe. So, yeah, the very act of putting that on, as you say, is a feminist act. Any of the hair story shows, I think, shining a light on uh, an unrecognised women from history that is a feminist act maybe maybe these women will come away seeming like bitches you know <laughs> their, their lives are being described maybe they, it would be an unsympathetic portrayal but that's absolutely fine because no one's trying to say that every woman from history was a perfect heroine that we can you know that we can all aspire to be like that's not really the point are you seeing a flip side to the feminist attitudes as well do you mean with men doing shows that mm-hmm. are are the mras in force <laughs> I hope not. Um, <laughs> I, the only show that kind of jumps out at me, because I see a man's name in the stand-up section, I do, I must admit, you know, just kind of jump onto the next one. But I am interested, obviously, in, in that as well. I hear that Daniel Floss has been trialling some really, really interesting material about sexual assault, which obviously doesn't sound like perfect comedy material, but sounds very, very interesting indeed. 
Brendan Burns has a show called Mansplaining, which I don't know if he's just chosen that title because it's a word that is used a lot rather than he's going to somehow challenge the notion or, or sort of try to be a controversial, but he is got a reputation for controversy so he might be doing a bit of that I'm not sure I will try and see that show yeah I guess I'll keep my ear to the ground in case I hear that there's any shows that are particularly anti-feminist or yeah if Jordan Peterson kind of thinking is maybe seeping <laughs> oh, in and I'd be very into it I've left a few gaps in my schedule for you know problematic male shows so that I can go and <laughs> watch them as well well there's a theme <laughs> what are you most looking forward to seeing oh well Cora Bissett's show, as I mentioned before, I'm very excited to see that. I'm also excited to see One Woman Sex in the City, just because I am very, very interested in Sex in the City. I mean, it could go yeah. either way. It yeah. might be a disaster. <laughs> Based purely on title alone, I'm excited for Wolverine the Musical, um, <laughs> which does sound very explicitly feminist. Who knows how it will go? You don't and want claws down there. To... You don't want claws down there. Uh, no, no, that's very true. And maybe that will be uh, examined. Um, and also last year I went to see a show that I absolutely loved by Lucy Hopkins, who is a sort of... I hesitate to use the word clown because I'm scared of clowns, but she's from a kind of <laughs> clowning tradition of performance, almost like a clown witch. I think she would approve of that description. And she just did this completely, completely mad show, which I just loved. And it wasn't for everyone. I can, I can acknowledge that, but it was so funny because she kind of sends up a certain type of... It's really quite hard to describe, but she's so funny. And she's doing a show called Secret Circle very late at night, at 10 to midnight every night, basically. And it's got a, a load of guests. And um, it's a late night ceremony of love that we always hoped we'd never need. And I just think (laughs) she was such a hoot last year. I can't wait for that. Amazing. Shona, where can people find you? They can find me at edfeministfest.co.uk. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Hi there. I am speaking to Elaine Miller, physiotherapist and writer of current Edinburgh Fringe show Gossip Grippers. Yikes. Elaine, thanks for chatting to us. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be on. Uh, I got a text from you yesterday when we were trying to organise this uh, this chat over the phone because you're up in Edinburgh at the moment. You sent me a text that said that you'd been, in inverted commas, ejaculated on already. Uh, so, Elaine, can you tell me a bit about your show and what inspired it, please? <laughs> Oh, it wasn't my show that I got ejaculated on. That's just oh. the joy of the Edinburgh Fringe. Oh, OK. <laughs> it was somebody else's show, and about 11 in the morning, she had um, she finished her show with a fake, I, I hope it was fake, um, <laughs> so the rooms full of what looked like yes, ejaculates. So it was it was a bit... <laughs> no, no, my, my show's about pelvic floors. And actually, oh. I'm feeling like it's a bit inadequate, and I should put some <laughs> ejaculate into it. <laughs> <laughs> can can there ever be enough in a in an Edinburgh show? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe. Uh, but tell us about the show, Elaine. Um, so I'm a physio that specialises in pelvic health and most um, one in three women leak and most women who leak never come to clinic um, to get help with it which is a shame because physio really works it's got a very high cure rate um, up to 84% so I got frustrated in clinic with yet another woman saying that she'd been putting up with leaking for a decade or more and I had a hobby of stand-up so I wrote a show about pelvic floors um, so it's evidence-based stuff mm-hmm. um, but it's not difficult to make this stuff funny and the idea is that the audience leaves knowing what the pelvic floor is and what the pelvic floor does how to do the pelvic floor exercises and where to seek help um so what is what is a pelvic floor 
Not wanting to, you know, ruin the ending of your show or anything. Like, spoiler <laughs> alert, but tell The tell big us. reveal. Mm. Um, so the, if you think about a pelvis from the top looking down, the, it's just a hole at the bottom of it. So the pelvic floor is a bunch of muscles that cover that to support all of your organs and stop them from falling out. That's its main job. It holds all your organs where they need to be. But it also holds your holes shut when you need them to be shut and it relaxes to let out pee and poo and if you're lucky enough penetration if you're into that and it's got an important role in your sexual function as well so kind of they're funny little muscles because they act slightly differently from all the other muscles in your body and that they're active all of the time because they don't get a chance to rest and they have to be able to do a long slow contraction if you're bursting for a pee to be able to support your bladder and then if you laugh or cough or sneeze they have to be able to do a quick fast contraction to resist the force to support the neck of your bladder and those that's a very very common thing in women that they wet themselves when they laugh and cough and sneeze and if you do your pelvic floor exercises then it goes away the difficulty with pelvic floor exercises is knowing if you're doing the contraction properly and it's really really hard to do any sort of exercise without understanding what your objective is so if you try and do a (laughs) pelvic floor exercise asking for a friend where should you feel it where should you feel the contraction it's right underneath if you imagine you gusset in your pants Mm -hmm. that's where you should feel it moving i have a horrible line that i use in clinics saying imagine you're trying to make enough space in your gusset for somebody to slip a folded 50 pound note which isn't (laughs) you wouldn't do it for a fiver um so it's right underneath where you're sitting Mm -hmm. um there's been lots and lots of work done trying to find the right command to get mm-hmm. to get people cued to do the the exercise and ones like imagine that you've got a zip going from your bum crack all the way around the front and it's zipping up to the front it works better if you it works better for most people if you imagine doing a contraction from the back going front the one that works the best is imagine that you're holding in a fart Okay. Because most people know what that is. And if you that is your pelvic floor working. So if you're able to squeeze and lift, which is what happens when you think, I'm not going to let this fart out because it's horrific and I'm in a lift with my boss. Then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that squeeze and lift action is you working your pelvic floor. And loads of people worry that if they can feel it at the back, they can't feel it at the front and vice versa. But it doesn't matter because all the muscles are supplied by the same nerve and they all do the same job. So if you can feel it somewhere, it is working. And then as it gets stronger, you'll be able to feel it at the front. And despite the fact that I am actually now closer to 40 than I am to 30, for some reason, I still think of myself as a bit of a sprightly whippersnapper. And uh, <laughs> I haven't had any kids. So this isn't uh, this isn't something that's that high on my agenda. But, of course, muscles are muscles and, you know, I I exercise and stuff. And so I know, obviously, if you don't work a muscle, then you don't, you know, you you need to use them, basically, don't you? Or you you lose them, as they say. So, Elaine, am I at risk? Yeah, there isn't any, not at this stage. There's no doubt that um, having children, specifically vaginal births, or Mm -hmm. particularly vaginal birth, increases your risk. So if um, if you're pregnant, then that means that the muscles are having to work harder to support the pregnancy. And it's actually the pregnancy that causes issues for the pelvic floor rather than the mode of delivery. So women believe that having a caesarean section will protect their pelvic floor, which it will. That you're, If you have a vaginal delivery, you're three times more likely to have leaking mm-hmm. than you would do if you had a caesarean section. But long term, it's the 
the effect of the pregnancy and the extra work that it's done that causes the problem. When you're pregnant, you produce various hormones that have an effect on your ligaments and your joints to soften them up for delivery. So that has an impact on your pelvic floor. And that's why lots of pregnant women leak because the pelvic floor is under pressure because of the extra weight it's having to carry. And also it can't work as well as it should do because of the change in all the ligaments in the pelvis. But those factors only have an influence up until you're menopausal. So once you're over 50, then there isn't any difference in the prevalence of incontinence between women who have had children and who haven't. It doesn't save you beyond your menopausal years. At what point should women start thinking about this? Well, from high school age, because um, it's something that's missing from sex ed. Mm -hmm. We don't tell people what normal peeing, normal pooing and normal sexual function is. So lots and lots of people that I see in clinic are peeing every hour, but they believe that's normal because that's what their mum did. When they were being potty trained, they're being potty trained by somebody who doesn't have good bladder function. So she sets up patterns in the, in the young person that are abnormal. So but, peeing every hour, that's abnormal? Yeah. If you pee fewer than eight times a day and once at night is normal, anything that's more than that is is a problem um, because it means that your bladder is not holding enough pee. So you should be able to hold on between two and four hours between first feeling the urge to pee and actually being bursting. And that's quite a long time. Arguably, you might not want to feel like you're bursting. You might want to feel like, I oh, just do this now. That's true. But what tends to happen with women that have got irritable bladders is they have a bit of an accident and they decide to manage it by never drinking anything again and going to the toilet every 10 minutes just in case. And then their bladder shrinks in size. So then when you're on a motorway, say, and you miss the motorway service station, you don't have enough bladder capacity to be able to wait for the next 10 miles. They get into a queue that's longer than they were expecting for the toilet and they can't manage it or they're stuck I don't know, maybe the seatbelt sign goes on in, the, in an aeroplane. And these are the people that are really, really anxious about, about that because they know that they can't hold on for very long. Not having body control of your bladder and bowel has more of an impact on your quality of life than diabetes or asthma. It's a thing that's sort of almost totally under-recognised in healthcare. It's associated with mood disorders. So if you wet yourself in the first six weeks after having had a baby, then it doubles your risk of postnatal depression. And this is a curable condition. So what um, can people do? It's just it's all about the, the pelvic floor exercises. Yeah. So if it's a weakness problem and you do your pelvic floor exercises then in, and you do them three times a day, in 16 weeks, most of them will be dry. Um, and if they're not, then they should come to clinic. Or if they get pain when they're doing the exercises, they should come to clinic because there's lots and lots of reasons why somebody would have incontinence. Incontinence is a symptom of something, mm -hmm. but the most common thing out in the dual public that are kind of subclinical so that they've got symptoms of leaking, but it's not interfering completely with their life. So they're ignoring it or they're managing with pads or they're avoiding exercise which is a big factor because we've got a real obesity crisis now in the UK. But if you let yourself in the front row of Zumba, you're not going to go back to Zumba. No, fair so enough. It's... I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I'd go to Zumba in the first place, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> I might wet myself just from being there. Absolutely, of course. I mean, these are the kind of things that I guess you sort of take for granted if, if it's not a situation that has impacted on you. But you're, you're right, of course. Like, that's that's horribly embarrassing uh, if you're in that situation I would imagine 
And that's, that's why it's a problem, because if you're not aware that this, if we don't teach young people about what the pelvic floor is and what to look out for, mm-hmm. then why would you know that there's anything to be done about it? Because the myth is that, well, this is what happens if you have a baby or this is what happens when you're older. And mm-hmm. it's factually incorrect. It can be it can be cured. Exercises. We've talked about how to do one. How many should you be doing? You say three times <laughs> a day. Yeah, it's quite a lot. It's quite a commitment. Mm. Um, the muscles um, at the bottom of your pelvis, there's quite a lot of gristle in there. Oof. So Gristly yeah. pelvis. <laughs> that is a lovely turn of phrase. That is not a technical term. <laughs> but, sure. I should probably say fibrous tissue. Okay, sure. So, they don't they don't strengthen as easily as say your biceps or your quadriceps would. Um, it takes a long time, and it's that commitment that is the problem. So the research suggests that you should do a hold for a count of ten, and then ten quick flicks three times a day for three months, three to four months before you would be dry. And the reason for the two different things is because, like I said, the hold for the count of ten. So you would um, sigh out. Mm-hmm. and then squeeze and lift your bum holes if you're holding in a fart and hold that for a count of 10. If you can't make it to 10, then that's okay. It'll get better as you get stronger. But the reason that it's 10 seconds is because there's a reflex inhibition of the urge to pee at 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a queue and you're bursting, if you can contract your pelvic floor, then you're not going to be doing that dance of shame and throwing you know elderly women out the way because you're about to wet your pants. Um, so you do that one, and then the second one is quick flicks. So it would be like... Oh, I'm going to fart. Oh, no, it's going away. Oh, that's going to be horrible. And it's going away. And you're just contracting and relaxing 10 times in a row. Because I see a lot of women who are fine, that they have good bladder control. But if they laugh or cough or sneeze, that's when they wet themselves. And it's just that the pelvic floor is not able to react and coordinate itself to the pressures that, that normal life puts it under. So a whole for a count of 10, 10 quick flicks, three times a day. And I've broken it down to 10, 10, 3. We won't pee with a 10, 10, 3, and then hopefully people remember. There's things you can do to help remember because it is really, everybody's busy, it's really hard to to put it at the front of your mind. So if you've got a smartphone, you can set a phone. There's an app called yes. Squeezy, which is a great name for an app. You can follow me on Twitter. I nag people when I tweet you, twitch your twinkle. Um, I try and I try and tweet things. Well, it's all it's all vagina and bum related or sex related stuff, like kind of evidence based stuff or things that I find amusing, so that when the app flashes up, it reminds people. Um, it, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Some people do it when they brush their teeth because at least then you're doing it twice a day. It really doesn't matter. The point is to to do them, and also like you're saying from exercise. The sort of philosophy in exercising is to go, well, if you're going from nothing to doing something, you're going to see an improvement. Mm. So although the research is saying three times a day, in clinic I see if women are doing it at all, then they see an improvement in their symptoms. And as they get better, then that motivates them to, to work on it a bit harder. And in fact, the first thing that people tend to notice when they're sorting out the pelvic floor is an improvement in the quality of their orgasm. And that's a motivating factor. Absolutely. I mean, I was going to ask you that what, you know, aside from not pissing yourself, which I think is, is quite a strong motivation <laughs> from my perspective, what other benefits are there? Yeah, so the, the nerve that supplies your tickly bits, the, your clitoris is supplied by the same nerve that supplies your pelvic floor. And an orgasm is in part a flickering contraction of your pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. So if your pelvic floor is not working well, then neither do your orgasms. Um, and this is information that we don't tell women. It wasn't until 1994 
that any sort of proper science was done on the anatomy of the clitoris. Before that, it was sort of over. Seriously, there was an Australian urogynecologist that put a bunch of women into an MRI scanner to see what the range of normal was. And prior to that, there were people like Kinsey and Johnson and Johnson mm. were doing work on sort of sexual response, but they weren't looking at the clitoris in any meaningful way. It was all about penetration, really. And you know, they mentioned they observed the clitoris, but they missed that there's the wee bobbly bit in the outside. But behind it, there's all these gubbins inside. And until they did this mm. research in 1994, they didn't really understand about the basic anatomy of the organ because it was of no interest to science because it's just about female sexual pleasure. And as we all know, that's a shameful thing. There's lots and lots of evidence about medical misogyny, and that's not to say that you know medics themselves are misogynist. But going back to the times of Leonardo da Vinci when he was writing or drawing and anatomical drawings, female bodies were seen as an aberration of normal because you would, you would get a lovely anatomical drawing of a male body and then a little subsection with what the female genitals were. Um, and, it, and it's just been missed because of cultural reasons. Mm. And all of women's sexual response um, or sexual function, the research is really only looking at penetration. And even now for women with vaginismus, you know, they get pain on penetrative sex. That's a thing that's really only addressed when they're trying to have a baby and it's entirely focused on get it in. And actually, you know, there's an awful lot of women that don't like penetrative sex, don't like sex with penises and just fancy having a bit of a fun time. That it's um it's almost as if they don't believe that they're entitled to that or that sex isn't sex unless it's got penetration in it. And none of these things are true. Sarahlane, when can we see your show? It's on every day at 4.45, first to the 26th of August at the Gilded Balloon Rose Street Theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, some of the nights are getting pretty busy and the, there's a couple of nights that are sold out now, which is deeply heartening. And I'd like to say that that's because I'm, you know, just hilarious and everybody should come <laughs> to my show. <laughs> but I think that actually it's because women are desperate for this information and because they know that and the show is funny. It's not, I've got a prolapsed chicken and I've got a five foot four singing vulva and lots and lots of jokes about farting. That it is genuinely entertaining, but because you come away with decent information and knowing about how to get back the control of this bit of your body and have better orgasms, it's not it's not a hard sell. And where can we find you on Twitter? Oh, I'm at Gussie Grips. So it's G-U-S-S-I-E-G-R-I-P-S. Like the show, Gusset Grippers. Lovely stuff. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I'm at Liverpool Street Station with comedian Tanya Lee Davis. Hello. Hello. Otherwise, well, or currently known as hashtag Scooter Girl. People might recognise you from, well, from our timeline recently because you've had quite the couple of weeks, haven't you? It hasn't even been a couple of weeks. Has it's it been 10 whole days and my life has changed. It's been absolutely insane. So, yeah, a week ago Sunday, I was on a train. You want me to tell you about it? So, just to be clear, you are on a mobility scooter, but it's actually a small one. Very, very small. It's way under any regulations. You know, that goes on airplanes. It goes everywhere, except for UK public transportation, (laughs) apparently. I was on a train from Plymouth or London Paddington Station with my partner, Kevin. And when we arrived, the platform guy 
already put me on the defensive because he's like, well, we don't really take those things. There's only one wheelchair space. There's supposed to be two minimum per train. There was none in standard class. So he's like, well, I'll put you in first class. He goes, but you didn't book assistance. And I'm like, because your system is down. That's why. And he's like, okay, but if a wheelchair user comes on at any point in the journey, you will have to get off because they have priority over you. So we were already in a pissy mood, you know. So, yes, I've, for the last 15 years, I've always been considered a, I've been considered a second-class citizen because I have the mobility scooter and being a little person. You know, I don't need a monster truck wheelchair. Wheelchairs are not easy for me to get into. The mobility scooter works for me because I can get out and move around, and, and the way I hook up my bags to the back, it affords me uh, the ability to be independent. So that's why I use a scooter. So I got on in on the train. It was, very, it was an old train, so it was very narrow, and the wheelchair space was very tiny, and it had one seat facing the space. So Kevin sat in that, straddling the scooter, and I sat in the bank of four facing him. And we were about an hour into the journey, and then all of a sudden there was a commotion, and the guard comes by, and he starts trying to push my scooter and roll it. And he's like, does this collapse? And I'm like, well, it doesn't need to collapse. And he goes, well, no, I got a woman with a pram coming on. I had a man's gigantic duffel bag on top of the scooter because there was no space. It was heaving with people and baggage everywhere. Then the woman starts arguing because I think she thought Kevin was the scooter user. So she was basically going, I've got a broken hand and he's got a bandaged wrist. So he's like, I've got a bandaged wrist. I can't take that apart. My wife's disabled. And so I got on the scooter and it was at that point because of the altercation I had getting on the, the train and because I had another incident two weeks prior to that, which I can tell you about, it's been an ongoing thing, that I was like, gave Kevin my phone. I was like, record this, because I knew we were in the right on this. I was like, record it. And so that's why you see the videos of me getting all frustrated. Kevin's, the phone kept turning off, which was really annoying. But we caught a good majority of it. And then as soon as the like driver started threatening us that he was going to call the police, Kevin was like, yeah, call the police. We were leaving for Amsterdam the next day, so he was kind of like, oh, shit, we, we, you know, that might not be a good thing. We might not be able to leave. But he would have tied himself to the trucks if we hadn't been leaving the next day. So the guard literally had a meltdown, and then I had a feeling, because he said, great, we're stopping in Taunton. That's it, we're done. This train is stopping. So I grabbed my phone from Kevin, and he had already started the Tanoi announcement, basically saying, we're when we get to Taunton, it's, we're going to be stopped indefinitely because the woman in the mobility scooter is causing problems and they're videotaping me and they're threatening to put it on the internet so i caught that last part of it but nobody's disputed what i said there was hundreds of people on the train they all heard it not one person has contradicted what i've said so it's all factual and so then when the when we pulled up you know i'm in the vestibule and i'm freaking out because now all of a sudden everybody knows it's not just the two first class carriages everybody on the train knows that the dwarf on the scooter is the problem so I'm feeling the pressure and I'm also thinking the police are going to show up I'm going to get banned from the train that's my only way to get around this country so I started freaking out and I was going to give in but Kevin was really fighting and so when the guard came back two ladies from standard class came and were really lovely they were trying to like what can we do to help how about you come sit with us you can sit near the buffet car we'll move your scooter you can park it there and I was like that's fine I don't care it was so weird I didn't know what was happening and there was just no room in the vestibule so I kept saying what do you want me to do what do you he goes just leave your scooter there I'm like it's blocking the door or the toilet on that side 
And he's like, well, you just leave it there and go back to your seat. You can't sit in it. Because I said, I'll just stay on it. No, you can't sit on the scooter. You have to get off it. I'm like, okay, so now every time we get to a stop, I have to get out of my seat, walk with my bad hips to my scooter, and move it to one side or the other, depending on where the, the, what the doors are open. He goes, no, no, I'll move it for you. I go, no, you shouldn't be touching my scooter. This is not a toy. You don't know how to operate it. So basically, that's what I ended up doing, going back and forth at each stop, moving the scooter back and forth. And it was just the worst. And I should have gone straight into the station reception when we got there and complained, but I just wanted to get the hell out of there. We ended up missing our connection to Norwich, and we didn't get home till, you know, wee hours in the morning. It was exhausting. It, you know, and then when we got home, I was so just, I was telling everybody on Facebook, and then they were like, well, you should make a video. So I went into the bedroom, and I just thought I'd just tell the story, and because I'm an emotional person, as soon as I got to the point where I was feeling humiliated, like, I just, I, even when I talk about it now, I just get really emotional, because it takes you right back into that spot, you know, and it's just tough. And, you know, I don't want to be a wincy baby, but it's just like when somebody makes you feel like that it's just it's so wrong and I know that probably wasn't his intention but it's a completely dick move and so that's why now when I do interviews I'm like that's I'm not a whingy type of person anybody that knows me knows I'm very strong but you know and it wasn't a moment of weakness either it was just desperation and it was how I felt at the time so I think that's what resonated with a lot of people with the videos have you had a lot of response I have been getting emails and and messages through facebook and, and twitter it just thousands and it's been amazing and uh, two or three have been a bit dickish the hit rate on that is pretty amazing and everybody's like you know we're not all like that we're, i'm like of course you're not all like that not all train guards are dicks either there's a lot of amazing platform staff a lot of train staff that are great the problem is the lack of communication you know and this is why now it's it's moved on from that specific event that happened on a Sunday. The following Friday, I'm going to a festival in York, and I switch in Peterborough, and the guard who I suspect kind of had heard about the situation said, okay, I've, I've rung through to York. They already knew you were on board because Peterborough called through. You'll be, we'll make sure we get off. Well, London Northeastern, train pulls up, doors open, a family gets off, there's nobody else around, and I'm on my phone, do-do-do-do-do. Then all of a sudden, ding-ding-ding, the doors are closing, I'm hitting the button, and then I just panic, because I'm like, shit, once the doors close, this puppy's going, and there's no stopping it. So I zip back to where I was sitting, and there was a, a, a couple and a, and a guy that I had been chatting to, and they start pushing all the emergency alarms. So the buffet guy comes over, and he's kind of like, what's going on? And I was like, still here and he was like what i go i was supposed to get off and he was like "Uh oh and then the guard came and he was like no way he said i asked them if they got you off the train he goes i was at the farthest end and it was on a bend so he couldn't see he felt so bad and i was like you did everything you could possibly do i i said i do not blame you because he caught me video making the video in the in the vestibule and i said i am making a video but don't don't worry I know you've done everything you could. And then when I got off in Darlington to have to switch trains, they were like, oh, no, it's you. <laughs> like, they were all just like, oh, shit, of all the people, the one woman said, of all the people. And I was like, so, of course, I get the royal treatment. So when I get back to York, they had a taxi waiting for me to get me to the gig, and I had to go straight on stage. And it was just like, people think that this is just, oh, you're unlucky, this happened. No. 
15 years. I've been dealing with this shit for 15 years. And, you know, the general public has no idea. Unless you have a disabled person in your family and you travel with them, because it's not even just about public transport. Like, Kevin made a great point. When we go out and we decide if we want to go out for a, a meal somewhere, we have to make sure the place is accessible. We have to make sure there's a disabled toilet. You can, you know, movie theaters or, or, or look, a theater, an old theater to see a show. All these things, it's like intricately planned out. You just can't go out on a whim. And this 24-hour booking assistance is bullshit because their systems are down You have, or you have to call individual train lines, which I'm sorry, the amount that I travel... I, can't, I don't have that much time in the day to be on the phone. And they charge you for the calls. Yeah. And then they also charge you for your disabled person's rail card, which is ridiculous. So can I ask you what the answer is? Because there's, there's kind of two different issues here, isn't there? There's the issue of how companies can help you, and there's the issue of how the general public can help you. As far as the companies, the problem is, is all the companies are independently owned. So they have different policies. Like uh, I had to take Northern the other day, and they have a flat-out scooter ban. So they tweeted to me saying, you're not allowed on our trains. If you take the scooter apart and you carry it on as luggage, then you'll be allowed on the train. It's like, if I could walk around carrying shit, I wouldn't need a scooter. Are you going to take carry me to the toilet when I need to go? Because I can't reach any buttons if I'm not on my scooter. These are the things... That they don't think of oh there i am stressed out i'm in sheffield i've got to get on northern train from sheffield to doncaster and then continue my journey so i show up martin moore my friends with me with a video camera we're waiting for a fight and nobody batted an eye they put the ramp down i got on the wheelchair space is actually bigger than the wheelchair space that i was on when i had the train guard incident so i just don't understand why they feel like they need to have a scooter ban some old person at some point must have tipped. I've been denied scooter cards from three different train lines because they say, according to the specs on your scooter, it's only supposed to go up a 15% grade, and our ramps are a 16% grade. So therefore, I'm not allowed a scooter card. Or uh, we've had two old people in the last 10 years tip with the same type of scooter, so you can't have a scooter card. And the only reason why I got one on East Midlands is because I took to Twitter and I raised bloody hell because I moved to Norwich, so I have to take East Midlands. And they just gave me a scooter card because I kicked up a stink. But the other train lines, I haven't been able to get a scooter card. But nobody asks me, except for that guard who was yelling, where's your paperwork? Where's your paperwork? And I'm like, what are you, the Gestapo? <laughs> like, it was, it was insane. Where's our paperwork? And what about other passengers on trains? Because obviously there is a competition for those spaces with people with buggies for example well the train lines need to take out some seats put in the flip up seats so that there's more space and then if, if nobody's using them clearly then the public can sit down great western rail their new trains has loads of space on it you know maybe just get rid of one entire car worth of seats and just put the flip-up seats so that you can have prams and scooters and wheelchairs and or people sitting if they need to i mean it's just it comes down to the bottom the money basically they cram as many flipping people on these trains as they can and they're overbooked people have bigger luggage now bigger prams than they've ever had before you know, and there's just not enough space. And people are very inconsiderate, you know. They just don't even consider somebody with mobility issues. It's just like, oh, well, you got a scooter. What do you, you got a seat. What do you, I'm not allowed to sit on my seat. I'm not allowed to sit with certain train lines. I'm not allowed to stay in the scooter. I have to get out. Well, then you're taking a seat from somebody else. Oh, fuck 
like, I'm still disabled whether or not I'm in the scooter. A lot of it is attitude. You know, like, they passed this new thing today, report. You know, and they're praising themselves. They've spent money on this and that, and, oh, all of our taxis are accessible. Yeah, that's great. Your taxis are accessible. But the taxi drivers refuse to pick me up. And a lot of people in wheelchairs get stranded on the side of the road trying to flag a taxi down, and they just keep driving by. And, you know, what good is that? It's, it's attitude as well. And that's, I don't want to come across as a foreigner that's bitching about how, you know, uh, British people are. But when it comes to disability stuff, it's stuck in the 1800s. A lot of well, you pay your taxes, so you're entitled to an opinion on how they're spent. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of how our taxes are spent, I saw a thing this morning saying the government's going to spend £300 million, quote, to improve transport for disabled people. By 2030. Wowzers. Yeah. So it's not like it's anytime soon. I know, that's when the MP called me. We'll just be scorched earth in Britain by then anyway, exactly. won't we? Trump's in office, we're not going to make it another five years, are you kidding me? So, yeah, I mean, I'll be in my 60s then. Screw that, you know, I... Ugh. It's frustrating. I mean, they keep saying that, and I have emails from 2010 where they sent me a report about all the great things they're doing in 2010. Here we are, 2018, and I'm, I'm having to move for a baby pram. So nothing's really improved. Obviously, lots of people from, from the disability community have been in touch. Can I ask you what advice you would give people if they find themselves in a similar situation? that you found yourself in yes well now i'm encouraging anybody that reaches out to me that does have issues on any form of public transportation any type of disability whether it be hidden or anything whip all your cameras we got to hold people accountable now because nobody listens in 2010 i was just you know a ginger dwarf trying to fight the fight but nobody would listen then i get it on video where people actually see how devastating it was for me and for kevin that they just go wow i can't imagine that that happens and i'm like yeah it happens on a daily basis this is what you don't get it's on a daily basis for us and it's it's so frustrating and we need to be heard and we need to hold the train lines and the any well, transport companies accountable you know things have to change can i ask you while well, i have you because you people may assume that you're american because your accent but you're not you're canadian but nonetheless you have lived in america yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. can i ask what you make of what is going on with me- medicaid in america when i was living in the states i did have medical insurance but then uh, after my divorce i lost it and I'm lucky if I can get back into the States because between Kevin and I, we have so many outstanding medical bills. Him more than me, actually, because I was escaping to Canada to get my medical. And now I'm not a, I'm, I've just lost my medical there. So I owe money in Australia. I can't go to Australia until I pay 1,200 pounds. I can't go back to Canada. Well, I can, but 500 pounds or dollars there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, people are losing their homes, everything because of medical bills, which is astounding. Everybody should have the basic level of care uh, for free. You pay so much in taxes that, you know, it should be a basic level of care. Yeah, it's shocking. It really is. On a more a cheery note, you're starting a tour, aren't you, in the autumn? Yeah, it's my old show. I've never taken on tour. I mean, you know, now with all this new stuff, I might try to work in some new material just to develop the the, uh, the other show that I'll probably end up writing. Yeah, it's called Actual Size. It's, um, you know, it's just basically my stand-up, but then with longer stories, and I'm going to break it up, but I have a, a couple of cool people doing support on the longer shows. So that kicks off in September. I've got various dates around the country. I think I've got about 14. I just got a couple added for 2019 now. 
and supposed to be doing a movie, uh, was supposed to be filming in August, but now it got pushed back to the spring, that stars Camilla Cleese, John Cleese's daughter, and Russell Kane, I believe, is the male lead, and it has, like, Henning Wynn in it. I've got this couple of scenes as American tourist, and that'll be fun. And, yeah, who knows, all these other production companies are coming at me, so we'll see if anything gets developed from that. But Where can people get in touch with you? I have a website, TanyaLeeDavis.com, which has my clips and my schedule. Also, obviously, uh, hashtag Scooter Girl campaign. I'm definitely looking for any uh, support on that. Like the page, share, tweet, the whole shebang. I'm also part of an anti-bullying campaign. I'm on the board of directors. The reason why I live in Norwich is because I'm on the board of Great As You Are. That's GR number eight, As You Are, text speech. And I go into schools talking to kids about my life and hopefully inspire them and give them the tools to let them know that they can overcome challenges and stuff like that. We just started to go fund because we're really running out of funding and we've got a lot of schools. Our next section is all about mental health that starts in September. So we have a GoFund page, so if you can come and donate and help us out. Are you still doing abnormally funny people as well? Is that still time it? Because yeah. you sound really busy. I, I am. Well, you know what I do? We do occasionally do corporates. I've got one in September with Lost Voice Guy. So, you know, those are popping up here and there. Uh, I miss those guys. Yeah, I miss my Liz. Liz Carr, you know, or I go way back. And now she's a big old TV star, so I don't get to see her very much. But, uh, yeah, good, good bunch. I look forward to when I do work with them. Thank you so much for talking to us, Tanya. Yeah. on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time in the week where we sprint finish past a bunch of dudes on the mall and collect our third count them three ride london medal in style as we chat all things women's sport also in a minute you'll hear me talking to female dart sensation fallon sherrick ahead of an exhibition match at the aylesbury theater on august the 18th but first yes i was in fact referring to myself in that intro yes in a great tale of sporting triumph over adversity the weather my total lack of training and indeed the first day of my period i completed my third ever ride london that's 100 miles uh, a bike ride just FYI, me and Beyonce back on the road again around the London and Surrey Hills, kind of like the London Marathon, but on bikes. And that was last Sunday. And despite all of that, I pretty much got a personal best too. And I overtook so, so many dudes who had grossly overestimated their own ability while I had grossly underestimated my own. I probably need to have another chat with Dr. Terry Simkin, didn't I? But look, Far more impressive than that, not least because it was actually a bit less than 100 miles because they had to divert us past the big hills because of the bastard rain. But anyway, a massive tip of the hat to 10-year-old Kitty Walton, who cycled up Mount Ventoux while holidaying in France last week. And that was in tribute to this year's Tour de France winner, Geraint Thomas. Kitty from Swansea cycled 14 miles to the 1,912-metre summit with her dad in approximately three hours. And, according to reports, that was in 32 degrees heat and against a gradient of around 12%. So to put that in context, I cycled up a gradient of 5% while on Ride London because they closed the big, big hills. And I actually managed it. And a lot of people didn't, to be fair. A lot of people around me were pushing their bikes up that hill. But I only managed it on the easiest gear while softly whispering, come on, come on, 
come on, you can do it, to myself. And that actually happened, I'm ashamed to say. That's actually how it went down. Anyway, while we're on the subject of cycling, it would be remiss not to give Laura Kenny a huge high five for winning her second gold medal at the European Track Championships in Glasgow on Sunday and with another possibility of another medal in the Madison on Tuesday, which was yesterday if you're listening on Wednesday, but I still can't time travel. When will it happen for me? So that victory was after a sleepless night with her baby son, Albie, on Saturday, she told reporters afterwards. So, you know, well done her. Now, anyway, I have wanged on for long enough. Ever wondered why women don't compete against men in darts? Over to Fallon Sherrock, winner of this year's British Darts Organisation World Trophy, to find out. Darts is perceived as quite a masculine culture and world. And so, first of all, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got into it. Basically, I got into it because, like, my family played it, my sister played it, my mum played it, my dad played it, and they all played county, so I used to get dragged along there. Yeah, I, d- I never wanted to play, yeah. and then I got dragged along and made to play and then really enjoyed it, and then proceeded from then. You've been doing pretty well, and you, you were a World Darts Championship finalist in 2015, and uh, you were the winner of the BDO trophy this year. And so what are your ambitions in the sport? Obviously, I want to win Lakeside, the World Championships. I want the ladies' darts to just proceed a bit more towards the professional side. So at the moment, it's not really in that place yet? No, I mean, ladies' darts is getting recognised a bit more, but it's not as recognised as the men. And so in this particular tournament, you're playing alongside men. Is that usually how darts contests are organised? We don't play against men. If you go to like a local league or something Mm -hmm. like that, then you play with the men. But the men are always playing their separate competition in the same venue as us. You always do get spectators watching because once the men finish, Mm -hmm. the ladies are probably still playing. They're quite supportive. But I think the ladies' darts is just becoming more popular anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean... A couple of years ago, you wouldn't really want to watch women's darts, whereas now a lot more people are wanting to watch it. And is that because it's the talent pool has become more developed? I think so. And how much coverage are you getting? We we get coverage every time there's a competition on telly, and we always get a coverage, a part of it, so... We can't complain. That's good. That's that's better than a lot of sports. In a lot of sports, obviously, women and men don't compete against each other, which is also true in darts. But in a lot of sports, obviously, they're more kind of physical. So it would be about the physical advantage of of a man, basically, versus a woman. Given that that is going to be less pronounced, why don't women compete against men? If we had the opportunity to compete against the men, we would. Because a lot of us women, mm-hmm. we do play ten times better against the men because we know we've got up our game, we know we've got nothing to lose and a lot of the men are actually doesn't want to lose to a woman, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Fallon, where will we be able to see you competing next? Probably Windmill. That'll probably be the next one. But televised, really, if I get to the later stages, that will be it. But... Other than that, it'll be Lakeside again. And is that the the World Championships? Yeah. Fallon, thank you so much for talking to us. And you can catch Fallon at an exhibition of darts, which is taking place at the Aylesbury Waterside Theatre on August the 18th.
Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I did 2008's Wall E, which is a Pixar for Disney, which we all know, everybody's favourite type. It's got a relatively small voice cast for reasons that I'll go into, but it includes Sigourney Weaver, John Ratzenberger, Yay. and Kathy Najimi, who plays one of my favourite television characters ever, Peggy Hill. And Jeff Carlin. And Jeff Carlton. Yes. And she also plays the big nun in Sister Act. Does she have never seen Sister Act? What? I know. Sorry. Dunleavy does the 80s coming up at some point soon. No. (laughs) I had never seen this before. Had either of you? And have either of you managed to watch it? I had never seen it before. Happy 10th birthday, Wally. But I did manage to watch it. I've never seen it before, but I also managed to watch it. Wow. See, Brexit has happened. Yeah, we can't believe anything See, anymore. See, this is what happens when we have a, couple, uh, a week off or two weeks off from doing it. You actually look slightly more enthusiastic <laughs> to doing it. Or maybe not enthusiastically, but with less of a sense of dread than usual. Did you like it? When this came out ten years ago, I got stuck in a car with a male comedian in a traffic jam. I won't tell you who it is because it will completely disrupt his on-stage persona to know that he talked to me for the entire time we were in the car journey about how he'd taken his kids to see Wally and it was quite possibly like the greatest film he'd ever seen. And the way he was explaining it and then subsequently things that I've read about it afterwards, I kind of came to the conclusion that this Wally is probably Pixar's Fantasia. It's probably the film that everybody looks at with a kind of technical wonder. And you probably tell from the fact that we haven't actually done Fantasia yet of this. I have no great desire to watch that. I've also read some stuff that compared it to The Little Champ, the Chaplin film. Something that also doesn't really do it for me. So I wasn't expecting it to be bad. But I did kind of think it might be one of those films that at the end I thought, oh, it's clearly me because I didn't see that thing that everybody else saw in it. Largely because there's not a lot of dialogue. And dialogue is generally one of the best things in Pixar films, if I'm honest. That said, I've also had a couple of weeks off from watching a film, so maybe I was a bit more predisposed to watching it, etc., But I have to say, having seen it now, I thought it was absolutely, completely charming, really. There are so many reasons for it to be wonderful, uh, one of which is that it actually contains Fred Willard and not Fred Willard playing a character. Actually, just Fred Willard being in it, which is amazing. Yeah, I thought it was great. I genuinely did. Should we do some plot, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. So the plot is, Wally is is a kind of trash collecting robot who has been left alone on a planet that I suspect did was Earth and it transpires is Earth that has been overrun by rubbish. There were other robots, but they've all stopped working, malfunctioned, yeah. whatever, so he's on his own. And there's obviously. only one cockroach. Yeah. A little hell. Well, I can't believe that that's true because they're yeah. allegedly the, the things that would survive anything. And he's living, sort of doing his job, going to work, and then coming home, overfeeding his pets, putting up fairy lights and singing to himself. So he is kind of like a stereotype of what a, a woman, a single woman in her 30s is. What Hollywood <laughs> thinks that is, that's what Wally's doing. Then arrives another robot who is much, much more technically advanced than he is. And he falls in love with it, I suppose, is the only way yeah. to describe it. Like a woman in their 30s, just like, <laughs> arrived, I, I will fall in love with it. Turns out she's looking for evidence that that planet could sustain human life. 
and she finds it in a little like seedling seedling yeah that's that's sprung up and the minute that happens she shuts down and waits to be collected and then the pair of them have a really weird non-consensual relationship yeah. where she's basically in a coma yeah. and he continues to attempt to woo her I think there's a Sandra Bullock film called While You Were <laughs> yeah. Sleeping there's a pretty similar plot anyway eventually she is collected and he manages to sort of hitch a ride and they end up on a spaceship that is 700 years into a five year journey that is where people have fled from Earth because Earth is now overrun by rubbish many adventures ensue. This is clearly trying to make a number of political statements some of which I agree with but some of which I still don't like seeing in a Disney film not because I don't think children deserve to cover politics but partly because a company that really does promote rampant consumerism shouldn't actually be running a critique on rampant consumerism. I think the greatest example of which is some of the selection of things that Wally finds in the rubbish like he finds a fire extinguisher now it transpires that the reason he finds a fire extinguisher is that it will be flagged up for a later plot point that when there is a fire extinguisher, he needs to know how to use it, which is what happens there. But it's not fire extinguishers that's going to cause us to create too much rubbish. They're actually quite useful. It's the shit you get in Happy Meals promoting Disney Pixar films, which would actually be what was in those piles of rubbish. So that kind of gets on my nerves a bit. Can I just say I love it when he finds a spork and he has a tin full of spoons <laughs> and a tin full of forks and he doesn't know which one to do. And so he just puts it in the middle. Out of interest, there is actually another thing that's that's real life that's inserted into it, which is a Michael Crawford film. And I don't know what film Hello, it is. Hello, Dolly. Is it? Okay. Yeah. He keeps watching it over and over again. Yeah. And that's where he kind of works out what how to express love. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a critique of consumerism. I think it's a critique about, like, complacency about technological development. I've seen it described on a number of occasions as anti-obesity. I don't think that's the case. I think it's anti-sedentary lifestyles, Yeah, which is the point that they're all sitting on chairs. I think it's anti-anti-gravity lifestyles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it. But yeah, for the most part, I, th- I think it's got loads and loads and loads of genuinely just great moments in it that are just absolutely charming when she's collected and she's obviously in her coma and he's hanging on the side and he sees something amazing and he shouts in the window Eve look (laughs) and it's about the cutest thing I've ever seen every time he just goes Eve I was like oh my god it's like going straight to my soul it's heartbreaking some of the animation is brilliant I love all the malfunctioning robots that are all just doing like what they're not supposed to be doing the captain learning about Earth in order to go back there is completely by a by what Computer, to be. Tell me what's a hoedown. <laughs> it's completely charming. Yeah, I've got nothing else to add. I we, thought it was amazing. We've got a dissenter in the room. Really? I thought it was dull as shit. Wow. wow that, that is the reaction that I thought I would have. I am that person. It. I am the person who doesn't Yeah, I, I thought it was dull as shit. I wanted, you know, a not you know I'm not imaginative enough to deal with this not talking bullshit give me some words there was singing and there wasn't enough was... singing I did, what I want from a Disney film is rampant sexism a Phil Collins montage <laughs> and some fucking tunes right <laughs> as well as Phil Collins of Phil Collins plus is that yeah. what you want yeah Phil that's Collins what I plus. want and I don't think that's too much to ask for oh I loved it it was very reminiscent I know you said Charlie Chaplin Hannah but it's sort of more Howard Lloyd Buster Keaton 
there's a Woody Allen oh, aspect to stuff. him. I actually exactly. hate all that stuff, it's but shit. nonetheless, I really liked this. Mm. I, I just, I was just like, oh my heart! Every time he squealed, he, he kind of reminded me of my cat, which might seem a bit weird, but the way he was like, he couldn't communicate with words, but would do something that totally touched my heart. I thought was pretty amazing. I mean, I've met people who actually rate this as one of their favourite films ever of all time, and I just, I, d- I did cry at the end of it, but I didn't really know why I was crying. <laughs> The year it came out, I think loads of cinema reviewers who are professional reviewers like Hannah like, called it their favourite film of the year. It got loads of favourite film of the year awards. I just, yeah, I don't know. What about the chatty bits? Did you come round a bit then? It was kind of funny, I guess, when the, like, in the, when the dialogue actually happened, it was quite a good dialogue. There just wasn't enough of it. And when Wally's like a cheeky monkey, though, and he notices that the robot doesn't like him leaving a mark, so he just puts another one there, and then he puts it on the yeah. robot's face, <laughs> and I piss myself <laughs> off. No, Jen's not convinced. No. I want a casually racist crab. All right, <laughs> that's all I want. Fair enough. Right, right then. So, Hannah, what, what mark are we giving it? I'm going to give it five. Five what? Five. Eva! <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. We've had a lovely time, as ever, and we do very much hope you have too. I'm recording this outro in my bedroom and the window is open because, I don't know if anyone's mentioned it, but um, it's pretty hot, actually, still. So you might hear the occasional uh, London overground train whizzing past. Anyway... We've no chops for you this weekend, or in fact next, but you did get two last week, so, you know, you can't complain. And they're well worth a listen, in case you've not already. You can hear an extended chat with Ruth Bratt of Showstoppers about what they do and what musicals to watch and whether the classics have stood the test of time slash hashtag me too. And you can also hear Anatta betwixt Hannah and Mick with author Joe Wheeler about her book The Hurricane Girls about the women pilots of the Second World War as well as Candy Adkins, the daughter of one of those very pilots. But do keep your ears peeled for our Hannah's Outside the Box, which is coming for you on Friday. And it's full of news and reviews about what's on the telly this month. And there'll also be a playlist, as ever. Next week, you get a bonus gig cast because we're all off to the Edinburgh Fringe. It's a recording of our London show in May featuring Marion Keys, Katie Tunstall and Vicky McClure. And it was absolutely glorious, so I recommend you have a good old listen of that. But if you're missing us... Get yourself a ticket to one of our Edinburgh shows where we have two in-conversation events. The first is on the 12th of August with Aisha Hazarika, Lucy Porter and Sharon Rooney. And the second is on the 13th with Louisa Omelan, Sue Pollard, Janine Garofalo and our very own Sarah Millican's only Edinburgh Fringe show. So get yourself a ticket. We've also got two stand-up shows. There are almost too many brilliant women to name. On the 13th we have Hayley Ellis, Zoe Lyons, Kate McCabe, Cindy V, Laura Lex and Olga Koch. On the 14th, we have Sally Ann Hayward, Joe Caulfield, Jen Brister, Evelyn Mock, Lou Conran and Sarah Barron. So basically, the most lols you can lol in time. So, do come along to that. You can find more details about when and where and how much and all of that gubbins if you visit our page on Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue 
as ever, you can tweet us if you like. We are at Standard Issue UK and also individually we are at Mixed Noonan, at That Dunleavy and at Inspiragen. And you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. Also, please, if you've got a second, it's lovely if you can rate and review us on the old iTunes because it just helps spread the word. Subscribe to us as well if you haven't subscribed because then it gets downloaded and that's lovely for us. That all counts and it helps us keep doing the things that we're doing. So please do rate and review us if you've got a second. That's really all I have to say for now, having wanged on for nine years as indeed I often do. So all that remains for me to say is that we will see you, well, you'll hear us in a couple of weeks, but until then, stay frosty. Standard Issue for All Women.